Welcome to the PT Project Podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm your host, James. We know that biomechanics can seem like a complicated and confusing field, but it really doesn't have to be. Join us every Thursday as we explore various topics related to biomechanics, human movement, and what it means to be a great PT in general. In other words, let us help you make sense of this wonderful world so that you can become the best trainer you possibly can be. Welcome back to the PT Project Podcast with myself and Jimbo. This one is actually something we took from our in-person day uh, a couple of weeks ago where we had this little section where we spoke a little bit about some of the bigger life lessons that maybe we've learned, maybe we haven't, (laughs) uh, across the years that we've been either just as people or as trainers or, you know, actually a little bit of a mixture of both is what we really tried to include in this. And we thought, hell, it went pretty well as the talk so and the discussion that came around it. So let's try and see if it works as a podcast. If it doesn't work as a podcast, then we're going to blame the lack of your participation and not ourselves for this because <laughs> it went beautifully in person. So Jimbo, do you want to kick off with your first of the big life lessons? We've got 10 here for you. Yeah. I sometimes though, just to <laughs> say preemptive, I feel bad giving big life lessons. I'm like, who am I to give anyone yeah. life lessons yeah, at yeah, all? Yeah. <laughs> but then I'm like, I have been in the game for longer than most people have been alive. So (laughs) (laughs) I might have picked up something along the way that at some point in time, someone might see benefit in. Well, I think one of the things as well for me when we were kind of doing this, and uh, it was Jimbo's initial idea, it's called these these 10 big life lessons. That's quite cool. But I thought the same thing as him of going like, I don't live up to half of these half the time, right? I I think it's possible to have like a lesson that you think you've learned and still fail it sometimes and still, you know, the, the great lessons you're never done fully learning. Maybe that's kind of right. Yeah. Um, but the, the biggest, I say, I say the biggest lesson, the first lesson I was going to go with, or the, it's not even a lesson I say, but a first thought process really, as I say, like your hardest times will lead to your best times. Yeah. So if you're going through a moment in life, in business, in personal circumstances, whatever that is, that will lead to the best times. And there's so many examples that I could pull from this over my career, but I'm going to pull from the literally before I even got into the industry. Two days before I was meant to start my personal training job at LA Fitness, this was 16 years ago, two days before I was meant to start, I was playing basketball on a Saturday evening basketball match. Mm. Um, Halfway through the match, went up for a rebound or a block shot. I can't remember exactly what it was. Came down on my left leg, had rotated round to, I think, my right. My left leg was stood on, I was blocked on the floor. Yeah. This dislocated my knee. <laughs> Kneecap dropped out, MCL, <laughs> uh, you name it, all it happened. <laughs> I was meant to start working PT two days after that. It's not going to happen. I was in a brace, literally six, eight weeks or whatever in the brace and four or five months rehab and recovery. Didn't start coaching, didn't start sort of PT, didn't start working until July, July the 15th. Um, that happened on February, I think it's end of February because I was meant to oh, start wow. the 1st of March. It's like Damn, the 26th, 27th of February, something like that. Um, I was meant to start on the 1st of March. Um, so at that moment in time, I was like, fuck, this is the worst thing ever that could happen. I meant to start my new career, my new job, what seemed like the hardest time. But that actually gave me free time to go and study start to get some things in place uh, just whether it's program wise whether it's just where i was going to go sort of business wise what was around um, back then but that actual free time in itself helped me i think map out the first phase of my working career 
Um, but then also it helped educate me as well because having a fucked up knee basically and then you know, I could learn from that and I went through the whole rehab process and stuff like that so in multiple ways what at that moment in time I was like this literally is the worst thing ever because my basketball career I was like well that's done there's no point trying to play semi-professional basketball anymore because I was still at that moment in time trying to juggle obviously starting to be a personal trainer and thinking I can still play semi-professional basketball um time commitment wise I still can do that I was like well that career is gone (laughs) um i'm injured and i can't start uh, my new job my new work so at that moment in time it's literally like well this is the worst thing that possibly could ever happen (laughs) but looking back on it i'm like well no it was actually the best thing that could happen because it freed up a couple of months financially it wasn't good (laughs) but it freed up (laughs) and led and got so many things in place that i think laid the foundations um for where things went over the next couple of years. I mean, first of all, it reminds me of, um, there's a great Freud line uh, where he said, in retrospect, the years of struggle will strike you as the most beautiful. And as someone, and I'm sure this will come up in some of my ones later on, as someone who went through uh, treatment for OCD, right, you know, the, the pain and crapness that was that is something I look back on I don't want to say completely fondly because I think that would be not quite right, but I like who I am now and I like where my life is now. And there's no guarantee that that would have been the case without going through all that hardship because you know, I, I don't know about you, but I don't, I'm not convinced that human beings really grow without pain. Yes. Like we don't change much about ourselves unless we're forced to. Like, there's an idea sometimes that I think people are sort of throwing things around that, you know, people, you could maybe change without disliking something or you can change just from love. And I'm like, I'm not convinced that that's true. There's, you know, I'm sure you guys are going to get to know this about me if you're listening to this already, but I love a quote. I've always loved words and language. And there's a guy called G.K. Chesterton who said something that, that resonated with me years ago that was something akin to, can a man hate something enough to want to change it, but love it enough to think it worth changing? And I think that is the actual sort of dichotomy at play within a lot of bits of hard times, is that you don't change till you hit the painful thing that you hate so much that you didn't, you wish you weren't in that moment. But in that moment, there's so much possibility for growth and change that when you look back on and hopefully you get to a point where you get to look back on it and go, I like where I am now. Well, would you be there without all those things? And the answer is you have no idea <laughs> because who knows where each of those roads diverge and, and where you would be. Let's say that hadn't happened to Jimbo and he hadn't had that. Well, he probably wouldn't be sat here having this conversation, but who knows what conversation he, he would be having. And, you know, maybe the conversation he'd be having is one that's great as well. Or maybe it would be a kind of crap one. Maybe he wouldn't have met his wife and he wouldn't have the kid he's got like you never like when you start you joke, you yeah. joke around and say that um yeah. literally I, I did meet my wife two weeks after starting personal training so did july, you? yeah literally started july the 15th <laughs> end of july stroke august um i met her and I'm, in my head i'm like well if i'd actually started in yeah. march and my business has picked up i met her in the gym by the way if i'd actually started in march and the business had picked up i might not have had the, the time yeah. or the free time to then go up and approach her so hobbling his way up (laughs) (laughs) so you joke about that but actually that could have been a true thing yeah Uh, (laughs) i might not 
those are those bits, right? That the butterfly effect or that little sliding doors moment, however you want to kind of think of it, is inescapably true. And you never, you'll never be able to go back and know. They're the great what ifs of life. Um, but if you are fortunate enough to be in a place where you actually quite like a lot of things, I guarantee you, you're going to look back at these big moments in life that were really difficult and go, I'm actually grateful for some of the lessons they taught me and some of the growth I got from that. You don't have to have loved the pain, right? You don't have to be sadistic about it to be like, I'm glad I spent all that time crying. It's like, no, you don't, you don't have to do that. But you will recognize that you wouldn't have grown and you wouldn't be where you are right now with all the things that that involves without those moments. It's, I think it's inescapable. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. Do you want to go for your first point? Yeah, so... And there's a couple in here that aren't my lines. They're just lines I've, I've nicked from things because, again, I like, you know, I went to drama school. I've, I've always really enjoyed words and language in a variety of different formats for who knows what reason. That's been true for as long as I think I've been alive. Even my, my parents would tell you the same thing. I, I love reading. I love words. And there's an old religious line. And I'm not religious. I'm very much agnostic. Uh, but I, I love the sentiment of it nonetheless. And so if you take out the first word, which is Lord, <laughs> the rest of it, whether you're religious or not, I think is, is a great line, which is Lord, grant me the serenity to accept those things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And if I was to try it now, if I was to try and encapsulate something that I think will stand almost anyone in good stead for almost any situation. The sentiment behind that applies to so many situations as to blow my mind. Now, the devil comes into the detail of going, okay, and that's the wisdom bit, right? How do you know whether you should be serene enough to accept these things that you cannot change and to try not to get caught up in your own head, worrying about things that you can't have an impact on, because that's human. We all do that from time to time. But if, <laughs> if you actually can't do anything about it, it's not in your interest to spend too much time dwelling on that thing, other than the occasional time when we all want to go, fuck the world, this is bullshit, and we need to vent a little bit. That's fine. It's probably quite healthy. But if you're spending more time on that than you need to, it, it's just getting in your way. It's not going to help you. And then the next line is, and the courage to change those things I can. Like, for the most part, the stuff that you have to confront in your life that is meaningful is hard to confront. Otherwise, you wouldn't be using the, the sort of confront this thing. It wouldn't require courage to change those things I can. Like, it would just be the obviously easy things to change. And then there wouldn't be these big life lessons. Life, you know, the definition of a hard choice is that there's shit on either side of it. <laughs> there's a downside. Oh, it's not a hard choice. And life is going to give you a bunch of hard choices. And sometimes it's easier in the moment to pick the one that you know isn't quite right. Uh, because it doesn't involve having to confront this thing, this awkward conversation, this saying no to someone, this turning away, this walking away from a relationship. This something that you know is going to cause you pain in the short term or cause someone else pain in the short term. But you need the courage to do that if you want to get to a place that you actually want to get to. And sometimes we all know that internally. I stayed in a whole bunch of relationships because I was afraid of being alone or I was afraid of hurting someone else. And so I stayed way longer than I should. And I suffered as a result of that. They suffered as a result of that. It would have been a better choice to have got out of that sooner. But, you know, I sort of lacked the, the courage to do those things. And then, you know, the final part of the wisdom to know the difference. And, you know, that's an ongoing trial. <laughs>
I think I'll go with the go with the next one. So my one was um, remove your ego. I think a lot of times that within the the fitness industry, we think in the early days, especially, we really want to have maybe our own brand, have this that we see other people doing certain things, and I think there's a there's a time and a place definitely for that. But mm-hmm. in the early days, in your early career. I think there's so much you can learn from being associated potentially with your with another brand mm-hmm. um, and being around other like-minded people, other like-minded professionals. Whether that's at a big facility, um, obviously I worked many years at M10, you've got your UPs and different stuff like that. But if you're just on your own in a pure gym, in a David Lloyd, in a Virgin, then it can be extremely lonely. Like it's a lonely job as it is anyway. But I think sometimes looking at different options, looking at different opportunities and thinking, okay, if I actually step back and almost remove my ego within this situation, can I benefit from being around maybe other people? Can I benefit from being under a brand? If I do that for two years, three years, five years, whatever that may be, will that then give you the ability? Will that then give you the platform, give you the confidence, give you the knowledge, give you the network, whatever it may be, to actually take you five tenfold above where you may have been if you just thought no no i'm gonna do this all by myself i'm gonna have my own brand i'm gonna just make sure i'm gonna be committed and do it all by myself well no actually there's so much we can we can benefit from i don't want to say using other people but using the other networks like that because like rather than trying to do everything all ourselves i know for me working on under the working under m10 first working within the muscle mentors as as leveraged and has, has helped me get to where i am today and i don't doubt that for a second that if i just stayed at la fitness uh, myself then certain opportunities might not have presented themselves i might not have met certain people other opportunities would have presented themselves um sure. but it's, it's understanding yourself as a person um and sometimes that can be quite tough as well to really take an ob- objected unforgiving view on yourself i think okay am i that person who can really build a personal brand and not try and leverage other people then yes, there are some people out there who obviously can do that. But a, a lot of us can... They're rare. <laughs> yeah, yes. A lot of us actually can benefit from leveraging other brands, other companies to help accelerate our growth. Uh, you only have to look at the successful people out there and go, okay, how many of them don't interact with anyone <laughs> that you also look up to? Let's keep it within the fitness industry that you don't look up to in the industry. It, there are very, very few of them. Like for the most part, it's not as big an industry as you think, by the way, when you're first starting out. Like, there aren't that many people in there. And so you do see the same names and the same faces. Uh, now, you could say that's because it becomes a bit of a circle jerk, right? And maybe maybe there's some truth to that. But actually, it's just that there, there really aren't that many. And actually, if you prove that you're good, that's going to be one of the fundamental rules, right? And well, how do you get... You weren't born good. You, you learned to be good through a combination of experience and teachers and everything else. And so did everyone else. And But then when you've proven that you have this value, we all look around and go, oh, that person's better at this than me. And so I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to try and learn some bits from them and like steal that bit. And then, oh, okay, they're better than me at the this aspect. I'm going to try and go and hang out with them so I can get better at that or I can outsource it to them or whatever it needs to be. You know, hopefully you have this thing, if you can remove your ego from it, where you're humble enough to want to learn and be a bit of a sponge and to take all those bits. And that's never, ever happening unless you're humble enough to go, other people can teach me shit and I can benefit from this. 
Yeah, yeah, but in the early days, it is a lot of them. Like, no, no, I can do this myself. I can do it. It's like no, <laughs> like even the guys who are doing insanely well, um, whether that's financially, whether that's just obviously where their business is at, at some point in time, are potentially use someone else to elevate their platform. Yeah, one hundred percent. And it, you know, again, that doesn't mean that you know we're. Networking sometimes makes it sound like you're there to use people and you will meet some people who are there with that type of thing in mind. Those people suck. You can usually smell them almost immediately. Like the reality that hopefully you're trying to find is that there's a group of people here who are actually really good, cool people to hang out with who also know a load of cool shit and you actually get to share in that. It's not necessarily a zero sum game here. It's not like for me to win, you have to lose. It's like, no, it's not gladiatorial in this in this aspect. And so networking can be a win-win where you get to spend time with people you like and it benefits your business. And you're like, sweet, that's, that's a massive win all around. Why would you not want to do that? And that's what the best groups do. Like no one treats, you know, let's say you go to university and you study physics or something. Ah, oh, well, they're just there to network. It's like, well, <laughs> no, they're also there to learn and spend time with people who are also interested in this and people they can develop from. And, oh, at the same time, of course they're networking because you're hanging out with people doing the same thing with the same interest, learning the same thing. That's the better way, I think, at least, of looking at networking when done well. It's just hanging out with people with shared interest who have a somewhat shared vision of wanting to be better, wanting to improve themselves their finances, themselves as coaches, whatever those things happen to be. Like, who amongst us listening to this doesn't want to do all those things? Who wants to earn less or be a shitter coach or whatever else that thing happens to be? I don't know anyone who comes under that umbrella. We're all trying to do those things. We might, some people, you know, maybe prioritize the cash side of things a bit more. Some people prioritize the technical skills a bit more. Some people want to be more front-facing and be a personality that's fine. That's the space within the industry to be you a little bit. But we can all benefit from that shared sense that we all have a bit of each of those things. Networking doesn't have to be a bit like sales, this shitty, sleazy uh, kind of thing. But even just touching on that as a slight side topic as well, sales is always frowned upon. Mm. But if we can't do an aspect of sales, we cannot have a successful business. (laughs) You're not going to be in the game for five years, 10 years, plus um if you cannot do some form of sales if but whether that's salesy or not but if you haven't literally got the ability to build some rapport build some connection with people um then you're never going to stay in the game for long uh so you you don't want to frown even on on the sales side of stuff as well no again it's and i certainly used to be a trainer who was much more like that definitely when i was younger i used to and i think it's because i used to see that sort of seedy salesman thing right that that hyper americanized like almost wolf of wall street style thing and that just felt so antithetical to me and how i see myself and what i'm kind of maybe naturally like i was like ugh. and so i created this sort of false dichotomy in my head that you were either a technically good trainer or a salesy wank bag and that's that's bollocks of course that exists of course there are the salesy people who suckers trainers anyone who's worked in a big box gym knows that there are a bunch of shit trainers who are surprisingly busy because <laughs> they're really good at sales or and this is the bit you can learn more from they're really good with people yes and we also know and certainly again this could have been me earlier on in the career where you weren't as busy as you could have been even though you thought you were a very good technical trainer 
And the, But the reality is presenting it as though those are your only options is stupid. <laughs> That's like saying you can only do this type of training or this type of training. It's like, no, 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 no. You can mix and match and you can do kind of what you like within this. And actually, the best trainers are a bit of both because... And I, I say this when I talk about being good on camera, like until people pay you attention, it doesn't matter how good you are, <laughs> right? Like people have to know who you are and what you do and what you deliver and who you help and all that stuff before you can demonstrate that you're actually, actually good at that thing. And really for me, that's, that's what the better part of sales is. And I'm certainly no sales expert by any stretch of anyone's imagination. But the sooner I embrace that idea that Really, sales was about communicating the fact that I was a good trainer who could help you, whoever you happen to be listening to this at that moment, that that's how I could look at sales. And I went, oh, well, that's not quite the same thing. That's not me trying to falsely sell anything to anyone. That was just me getting across my skill set in a way that benefits both of us. Yeah, I think as long as someone coming into that, I'll say, sales call, sales situation, if they can see there's value on both parts... Really, if they can see that you can provide value in terms of the result they can get, obviously there's someone that generally has been following you for a while, can see what you can provide, then there's not much you've really got to do in terms of pushing the sale. Like, really, it's just build rapport, build the connection, explain potentially what's it within the product, what's within the service, whatever that may be, and then decide whether you move forward. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's, it shouldn't be much more salesy than that. No, I'm, you know, I'm sure some people push the hard sell. I feel so uncomfortable doing a hard sale. And I'm sure some people are going to say, well, that's going to cost you business. And yeah, probably. I don't care. <laughs> I don't, I'm okay with losing some business because that I could have had because I wasn't willing to do a hard sell. Like, eh, it just feels icky. It, I do fine. Like, it, I, you don't have to be that person just to make that work, even if there is a benefit in that. Yeah, but that's a personal bias. <laughs> Little tangent. I think we... Was it you, you next? Yeah, I think so. So... Uh, my next one was, you get to define success, right? I think sometimes we look around and go, okay, this person's doing this and that person's doing that. And perhaps this has only been exaggerated in the social media era because we get exposed to so many more people's versions of success. And I'm not someone who hates on social media and think it's just, you know, it's the highlight reel and that's all. And yeah, I'll yeah, it might be all those bits and pieces, but in part that's because no one wants to watch someone's social media that is the antithesis of the highlight reel, right? Let's just say that's just a person crying constantly. You're like, well, this is this is very depressing. Uh, so I, I think social media has pros and cons and plenty of good things, but it can lead you to start thinking, oh, maybe I need to, you know, we could use Cal, who we used to work with at the Muscle Mentors. Cal does an ungodly amount of coaching, <laughs> right? How many, what was the most he got up to client-wise? It's probably surprised it now, but I know he was at 140 at one point. Yeah, I was going to say, I was thinking it's around 150 in my head, what I remember saying. And, you know, that earns very well as a result of that. But that means Cal lives on his phone <laughs> like almost no one you've ever met in your life. And, but here's the thing for Cal, he's very happy doing that. He doesn't really want to be doing anything else. I remember he, he pulled down the number of hours he was doing. Uh, the number of people he's working with to free up some more time just said he was bored. <laughs> like, fair enough. To, to Cal, that is exactly the kind of success that he wants and that he has earned and that he's deserving of. And you could look at that and go, wow, I, I want that. And maybe you do. And if you do, cool. Go book a consult with him. Ask him questions about how he did it. Go and start pursuing that thing because you got to choose that success. But for me, that is not 
the type of success that I'm actually interested in. Like, would you like to earn the same amount that Cal brings in a month through coaching? Yes. But if it comes at the cost of doing the amount of coaching that Cal has, then the answer becomes no, <laughs> right? Because actually for me, success for me is a certain number of clients, and I'm fortunate enough to keep to this number pretty much all the time. And if a client leaves, it's pretty easy to replace that person. So I work the amount that I want to do. And I want to do a certain amount of teaching and educating within that. And again, I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that these days. But I also want some free time to play my bass guitars. And I want a bunch of time where I can read my history books or read some novels and go to the theater and spend time with my girlfriend. And actually, for me, success involves ticking all of those boxes simultaneously. And if I want to emphasize one box, it has to come at the cost somewhere else because there is only a finite number of hours. And that can be okay because here's the other part of this. You get to define success, but that will change over time. It's okay that what you call success at 34, how old I am now, is different to what I would have called success at 23 or 26 and probably be different to what I call success at 40. But you get to ask those questions of yourself and it will take, I think it will take a bit of time. Um, you know, when you're in your early part of your career and just you're a younger adult anyway, you know, I've, I've used this example before. You know, when you're 22, 10 years ago, you were maybe just starting puberty. <laughs> Lots of things changed. That's a that's a shitload of change. Ten years. You were watching fucking Ben Ten and playing being a Power Ranger, <laughs> right, <laughs> or whatever it was that was around at that particular time. And now you're 22. You haven't spent 10 years at 22 though. Those 10 years, shitloads of things changed. Like the idea that you're gonna be solid in your identity as an early adult is horseshit. <laughs> no, you're not. You're going to know loads of things. You're going to be really uncertain of stuff and you're going to have to go and try things to find out whether or not that feels like it sits with you and is you or no, that wasn't me. And, and then you'll look back at it and go, God, why was I trying to impress people with that? Or I don't give two shits about that now. And all the things that go along with, with growing up as it were. And so I think when you're trying to define success for yourself, when you're younger, I think one of the big keys is go and try lots of things. Jump on as many courses as you can. As Jimbo said, you know, remove your ego, go work at great places so you're around a bunch of people that you can look up to. And then if you can go into that accepting that what I call success now is allowed to change, you'll probably be in a pretty good space across time. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah, to touch on maybe a couple of points within that, one when you're maybe looking at the financial side of stuff, um, the hardest thing, the hardest sort of financial skill is I think is to get them numbers to stop moving. So I think everyone should almost try at their point in life at that moment in time or say the current moment in time, you should have a number in terms of what they want to maybe bring in financially. Mm -hmm. I'm going to call it because it's always put out there 10K a month. Sure. Because that seems to be the, <laughs> the be all and end all. <laughs> but the thing, if your expectations maybe keep rising and keep pushing on, then sometimes as you strive for more, you don't actually get more reward from that. So once you get to a point and maybe you hit that 10K and then you get up to 15, you don't actually feel better on 15 because now you're expecting and now your goal is to hit 20 and then your goal is to hit 25 or whatever it is, or even if it's going from two to three, yep. three to four, um, it's understanding, okay, at that moment in time within your life, don't let that number keep moving up. Uh, as, as you said, like allow time in your life to do other things. If you hit that number, okay, I've worked my ass off for these last six months, 12 months, two years, five years to get to this certain point. What do I need to do to maybe solidify that? 
but then to free up a little bit of time to bring out the things. Because if that number keeps moving, you're never going to feel happy. You're never going to feel satisfied because we can always strive for more and there's always a bigger game. And that's a good and bad thing about having successful clients. I've still got a client that I see every two weeks that I go to his, he pays me to go to his home gym and his house is worth multiple millions of pounds. And some of the people that he hangs around with, they've got yachts out in Monaco <laughs> and stuff like that. So like he's playing on a different game and he's speaking to people in a different level. And I'm looking at him like, and it's just insane like what he's got. But I say, we've got to be careful that we don't get caught in a trap where we want to look at sometimes these people as aspiration and see, okay, what is actually possible and where they've maybe come from, but not think, oh, I've got to achieve that. Dude, that's one of those things that people don't bring up very often, but it's actually a really good point. As a trainer, especially when you're younger, you will spend time with people who earn way more than you. And, and that can be a little bit more than you and astronomically more than you. And it's a really weird situation sometimes to be in when you're earning, you know, starting out, you're earning 22K a year or something. And you're, yet your clients are multimillionaire. <laughs> and if you get on well with them, you might well go around to theirs for, for drinks or dinner occasionally or do this, that and the other. And you will be exposed to this world that is unlike anything that your own one currently looks like. You know, you might be in your early 20s and they're probably in their late 30s, 40s. And you wouldn't normally be exposed to that as a 20-year-old if you were working just at the accountants uh, or just as a plumber or whatever it is that you happen to be doing. And yet as a PT, you do get exposed to a side of society that at that point in most people's lives, they're not often exposed to. And so that can be intimidating. It can be aspirational. As with most things, it's about how you interact with a moment, not just the moment itself that informs how you feel about it. So when you're around people who earn very well, you could take that as we just said, aspirationally, or you could take it and be intimidated by it. You can be both. It's a bit like, you know, if you hang around a really attractive person, sometimes you're like, oh my God, they're ridiculous. That man is the most handsome man I've ever seen in my life. I have never felt more ugly. But you could, you can have this thing where you can both admire and go, ah, oh, and be a bit jealous. You, you know, we have mixed feelings about many different things, but that drive, as Jimbo said, to pursue more can sometimes stop you from smelling the roses. And that ability, now you don't, if you're constantly just smelling the roses, then you're probably not getting anywhere. And you need that drive forwards at the same time. You don't just want to be the weirdo sniffing the rose bush, right? But if you never stop and sniff the rose bush, then you're missing out. I think it's finding that balance. And that's, you know, that cliched word that's going to come up a lot. And it's yeah. unique to you and it's unique to different points in your life where chasing is great sometimes and then pausing is great sometimes and find those ratios and even just ask yourself those questions that's i think as good as it can get is like asking yourself paying attention and going is this what i want like again you get to define success so, and just yeah, yeah, yeah continuing on from that as well because that leads on to one of my points and the fact that say balance you don't just find balance you need mm -hmm. to create it um, and very likely you will need to go through phases where you push too much to find out what balance is for you. Almost an analogy I like to sort of think of is if you're trying to put on tissue and you're going to keep pushing up your calories, you're only going to know the point of when too much food is to the point <laughs> when you start to feel physically sick. If anyone's been to that point where food's that high that they're force feeding themselves, 
and I know I've been there many times in the past, literally like you, know, you start <laughs> heaving as you're trying yeah. to through, force through it in. It's like you don't know where that limit is until you find it. And I would say if you're a young trainer, you do need to find that limit. Hmm. At different yeah. stages of your career, that will be different. Even if we're looking at hours throughout the week, that'll be different amount of hours that you'll work. The hours now that I have to, I don't say have to, that I choose to give to my family is something I wouldn't have had that commitment in my 20s. I like the idea. I just have to get that. <laughs> I have to give that time. They keep just asking for my time. <laughs> um, but sometimes we think, oh, I'm going to find balance for whatever that is. The balance is going to continually change. You're going to continue adjust. Every six months, every 12 months, what was balance for you maybe a year ago is not going to be that same thing now because life moves on. Yeah. But it's continually something that you need to review and you need to create. You're not just going to find balance in life. And it's so easy. I feel like you only notice when you've lost it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. You, you when have you're getting to it right. Extreme. Yeah, but even like even once you've done it for a little while, sometimes you take it for granted when all the plates are spinning successfully. Like because as, as well, if you've ever done a thing re, with a, a huge amount of focus, right? So you've had a lot less going on in your life. Let's say you've prepped or something like that, and so everything else takes not necessarily a complete backseat, but you've decided to put this one thing on blast and this is the thing that you're kind of going after or you work all the hours under the sun. Then when you pull back to what is actually a reasonable number and a reasonable amount and sustainable, sometimes it feels like you're not doing enough and there can be this thing that happens to people. My girlfriend's a good example of someone who, who struggles with this, that because she was so focused on just one or two things and now she has more interests Sometimes she gives herself a hard time for almost not doing enough for any one of them because it's it's more balanced, right? And actually, when it's going well, she starts to be like, oh, maybe I should push a bit harder in this one. And then she does that for like a couple of weeks and then goes, oh, I'm feeling burnt out again. <laughs> like sometimes we take when we've actually got everything spinning swimmingly and smoothly almost for granted. And But then at the same token, as Jimbo said, how do you know where your limits are until you push past it and fall off the cliff a little bit and go, fuck? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's something that we're going to continually probably as, um, say, entrepreneurs who want to really obviously succeed in, in life, in business, in, in our jobs, in our careers, we're going to continue to be pushing that limit and pushing that balance and almost stepping over the cliff. Uh, but we've we've got to be on the edge, uh, I think, to really have a successful career. Because if we, if we don't, like, it's a bloody competitive game. And if we're not trying to push, then someone else is going to overtake us. Let's say the other thing within that, that that balance idea, if you won't just find it, you need to create it that I think is really nice, is, so let's say, and I have this conversation with a few people who've done a bunch of competing and have started to struggle with their headspace a little bit and then recognized, oh crap, I need a bit more in my life to keep me sane if I want to keep doing this for longer. Because if I have nothing else to turn to, the moment prep finishes, I just start feeling shit because there's nothing to fill that void. And I feel like I'm just getting fatter and going in the wrong direction. And ah, right. And so I think most people, even if they're really committed to something like bodybuilding, still want a couple of external hobbies that they can switch off in and just kind of enjoy and whatever else. But if you've never had that and you don't know where to find, how do you find that balance if you've only ever had this one passion? And that's actually difficult. And I think the, the great words you, you put in there was you have to create it. And there's a few things you can do. You can start asking. One of the things I always ask people is, what were you interested in as a kid? Yeah. Right? Like, what other stuff? Because I've never met someone who didn't have some interest as a kid. Right? Maybe there are, but I've yet to meet anyone. And maybe you've forgotten what they are. But and maybe they won't be the same things that interest you now. 
Right, if you were, I was super into Power Rangers, I'm like, right, well, that might be different. <laughs> second time I've referenced Power Rangers, apparently, on this podcast. Um, but you can go and start exploring those things that, that just called to you when you were a child. Because God only knows why you're interested in some of the things that you're interested in as a, as a kid. Why is that one child really into maths while the other one's into bugs? Like, no one knows. <laughs> Not really. Because uh, they can be the same kids. Sometimes they can even be twins who are interested in different things. You're like, explain that one. But you get to go and find out. So just trying stuff, create it. You get to create what it is to be balanced for you. And sometimes it's really obvious and sometimes it's going to take time. And that's okay. Create it, I think, is the key. You won't just find it. Yep. Um, are you next or am I next? I've, I've lost track. Of where we're <laughs> I believe it's me. Right. Uh, so this one actually relates to, to OCD. And this was about overthinking. Um and overfeeling really in general. So obsessive compulsive disorder, which is what I struggle with, is really a condition um, <laughs> about the inability to stop thinking about something and it to dominate every waking hour of your life. Uh, and the compulsion side, a compulsion in OCD. So you could define an obsession as anything that you can't stop thinking about that causes you distress. Because otherwise, what's the difference between an obsession and a passion? Like passions sometimes are beneficial. Like maybe we need to go through like obsessive periods to get good at something. I'm actually pretty convinced that we we do go through obsessive periods that make us good at something. So obsession by itself isn't inherently negative. So the, the psychological part is anything you can't stop thinking about, that causes you distress. That's going to be the key part of this. And a compulsion is anything that you do that temporarily soothes the anxiety that you experience, right? So there's a lot of overlap between eating disorders, OCD, and addiction for this reason that let's say an addict might you, they might, if you feel crap in the moment for whatever reason, you can't escape your head and it's just almost unbearable. Well, some of the things that you can do to escape that are any of the immediately, obviously pleasurable, immediate experiences. So sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Those things are inherently immediately right now, something that make you feel temporarily better. And that's often why people turn to them. They're an escape. But those compulsions often themselves come with downsides. If you're going to be the sex addict person, you're going to either need a shitload of cash because you're probably getting prostitutes or you're going to be Brad Pitt, right? And so there's, both are going to probably come with some issues. You might end up with eight. Might not be that, might not be that great. Uh, even if it sounds, oh, that one sounds like the, not the worst of them. It can still be a problem. I don't think we need to explain why drug addiction is problematic for people, right? Leads to plenty of issues. Food, food can be immediately pleasurable and is why often people turn to a binge. It's an escape. It's a numbing agent. It's something that gets them out of how they're having to feel or how they currently feel in a moment. But that crap, that compulsion that you turn to that helps soothe you comes with its own bunch of shite. <laughs> that over time, sometimes, you know, we've got an example of the cure being worse than the disease. And in obsessive compulsive, sometimes the, the compulsions aren't outward manifestations of cleaning things or turning Coke cans and the usual stuff that we maybe think of OCD. They're mental compulsions. They're things we go over and over and over in our head and you stop being present. And effectively, we have a, an issue in many senses of, of overthinking. And actually, I, I think a lot of our society suffers with overthinking. You might say that anxiety disorders are characterized by overthinking. And actually, the key to some degree within this, is you can't solve a thinking problem with more thinking, right? And that sometimes the way out, that's one of the interesting parts of, so cognitive behavioral therapy for OCD is quite different than cognitive behavioral therapy for 
other types of uh, anxiety disorder or depressive disorder. Most CBT gets you to focus in a little bit on the problem, spend some time addressing it, understanding it, challenging thoughts, writing stuff down, etc. OCD goes, no, <laughs> no, no, you're hyper-focused on this issue way too much. We need to get you out of thinking about that and thinking of almost anything else <laughs> uh, and not engaging with those thoughts, which is a difficult thing to do. But was hugely crucial if, you know, we go back to the hardest times lead to the best times. That skill of having um, an upsetting thought or something that I found like really distressing and being able to not engage with it and to let it go and to refocus on the present, that skill and that recognition that it starts with going, okay, I have an overthinking problem. When I catch myself wanting to think and think and think more about it, oh shit, can I think my way out of a thinking problem? No. <laughs> okay, I need to do something else with this and catching myself and doing that. And over time, it's a skill, right? And like any skill, you can get better at it. That skill has helped so many facets of my life and really gave me my life back. Uh, and it's just one that I, I, I like to keep to heart quite a, quite a lot that you can't always think your way out of certain problems. Sometimes you need to just go and do something or do something completely different. Um, and if you find yourself dwelling, generally good advice, for longer than two minutes on a problem and you haven't come up with a, a solution, you're not go like, unless you're sitting down and you're genuinely strategizing a physics problem and you're trying to work out equations, then fair enough, right? But if you're just playing the same crap scenario over in your head for longer than two minutes and it hasn't changed what you're doing, you have this unconstructive worry. And your best bet at that point is just to write down what you're, like you need a game plan sometimes. So you might just write down, okay, if this situation happens, then I will do this. Then you've got your strategy, you know what you're gonna do. And then all the rest of the time that you're thinking, oh, but what if this happens? What if that happens? Well, you know what you're gonna do if this happens. You've already laid it out. Worrying what you're going to do if it happens any further than that ain't helpful. It's just taking up the present and ruining your life a little bit. It's overthinking. Let's get rid of it. Let's refocus. Let's bring ourselves back. So that's more of a, a personal one that affected my life a lot of going, you can't solve a thinking problem with more thinking. Very, very insightful, very good. But just sort of, I don't know, is it tangent or not? But you're talking about doing something on yeah. there. Uh, for me, if, you, if you're truly doing what you love, not to put an end date on it. So the, <laughs> for me, the big life lesson is that retirement at 40 is the goal. Like, no, it's not. One, because I'm nearly 40. <laughs> so, so that's partly why I was like, what, what am I going to do with my life if I retire at 40? I wish I was in a position to retire at 40. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of times that's when we're in our 20s, we'll think, okay, get to that. Well, I talked about financial, obviously, early. Get to that financial goal, and that's the end goal. Get to that age, 40, and then I'm going to retire. And then I'm going to pull back. And then I'm going to do things like no that's not the goal and i think like if we truly love and are passionate about what we're doing we don't want to have an end date on that mm. like yes throughout periods of your career that's going to adapt and that's going to change there's nothing wrong with that at all you don't have to be doing exactly the same thing at 25 to 30 35 to 40 plus and that is going to potentially change but we don't want to be thinking okay well i'm in this fitness industry until i'm 40 and then i'm done like no, there shouldn't be an end date on there. There shouldn't be, I'll, I'll retire at 40. That's my end goal. Because if that is your mindset, if that is your thought at this moment in time, honestly, you're in the wrong industry or you're pursuing the wrong career or you're going down the wrong path. Because if you can't envision yourself doing what you're doing for 10, 20, 30 years, 
then I'd question as to if you're really passionate about it to really succeed at it. You can tick over for a few years, but if it's something you can't envision doing long term, then it's like, well, is that true passion there that you're thinking of an exit plan already? You're thinking, oh, how can I get out of this? Yeah, I think I think that especially in a, a coaching setting, like you know, maybe if you decided that what you were passionate about was building an app, right? And you had this great idea and you were going to do it and then retire after that. You're like, all right, that, that's, you know, still, <laughs> you're putting a lot of eggs in one basket and <laughs> really hoping this pays off. And maybe it will. There are some people who do manage to do that. And if that's what they want to go and do, fine. But oh God, how big do you need a coaching company to, <laughs> to be to do that? And what are the odds that you'll be invested enough to be good enough to spend all the... the this job does not pay well initially, <laughs> right? It, it takes a little bit of time before you're earning pretty well. And so in that period, when you're starting out, you have to have some passion for this. Otherwise, you'd pick a different gig. Like there are better ways of just earning cash if cash is what you're interested in, in and of itself. Like genuinely go work in some finance thing. Uh, there will be certain sales gigs are going to pay you way more than this without half the stress, if you're not passionate about people, about wanting to help people, about training itself and all the kind of bits and pieces that go along with that. That, by the way, doesn't mean you have to be super psyched every minute of every day. That's not what this looks like. Uh, but if, if you don't have a, a reasonably deep love, like, okay, so in, in my own world, in the perfect world, I probably work like two days a week <laughs> doing some of this. I, because I have a lot of other hobbies and stuff, but I can never envisage a time when I wouldn't be interested in the fitness topics you know, they'll evolve and change and who knows what they'll be in, but where fitness didn't play some part in my life. That doesn't mean I want to spend, you know, every single day for 12 hours a day only doing fitness kind of related things. I'd be quite happy to get to a point where I get to do a couple of days. I get to go and hang out with great people, discuss cool topics, teach some stuff, hang out in Hawaii. Like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be a really lovely mix for me, but I can never imagine getting to that point where I, I didn't want to help people and teach people and coach people a bit through these things. The way in which I would, you, the medium in which I would do that might change a little bit and fair enough. But do you care deeply about the topic and these topics and, and this thing? And if, if you don't, you know, I'm reminded of the line that success is the journey towards a worthwhile goal, right? You know, yeah, you need to know the, the goal you're aimed at to some degree. Otherwise, how do you know which path to be on in the first place? You've, you've got to fall in love with the process. Yeah. And even just related to coaching in general, a lot of times in our 20s, I say, we think, well, I'm going to do this until I'm 30, 35, 40, 45, whatever it may be. I'm going to do this for X amount of years. And then I'm going to transition into something else. Mm. But if a chiropractor can still practice till they're 45, 50 plus, if a doctor can still practice, if a physio can still continue to practice and still have passion and enjoyment within their job and still see results. So why can't we still do that? The medium of how we obviously give our service across may change. We may not always be in that pure gym or that commercial facility, but it doesn't mean that if any other professional can see passion and keep moving forward in their career in other service-based industries, that why we can't do the same rather than thinking, okay, I'm going to do this for X amount of years and then I'm done. And then think, I'm going to be a business coach. <laughs> do, you, do you think that because PT is still quite a young industry, really, yes. and that we we just don't see many people who've been doing it for 20 years? 
And so, you know, maybe we've, the industry has sort of almost learned this lesson inadvertently. And I use learned in air quotes because I don't think they should have learned it. But this idea that it has a, a really small shelf life, that by 40, you, you have to have stopped doing this, that you can't still be online coaching at 50, right? Or whatever those things have to be. And it's like, are we sure? Is that just because we, we haven't seen other people do it just because this is a new industry? Like, I suspect it's that uh, for the most part. And I also probably suspect that there's something in it related to the length of time that people actually PT for. And that because so there's such a churn rate in this industry, right? Yeah. Like the, I think we've said this before, the industry average was last time I looked was something like 18 months between someone qualifying and never doing it again, which is skewed by people like Jimbo who've been doing it since 1870. So there's some people in here and, <laughs> who've been doing and, a really small amount. Yeah, and often where where we're at, I know Paul that I personally I lose you lose track of that. I was speaking to one of my clients yesterday, he's based at a pure gym in London. He's been there for eighteen months and no one member of staff is the same as when he started eighteen months ago from other PTs and there's ten plus PTs in this facility, plus management, etc. Every single one of them has changed in the last eighteen months. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's insane we don't quite realize sometimes the churn rate they go through did you see that uh premier the training provider are closing down no, no. yeah thing is i'm like oh what i took that to i'm like does that mean that the p because no, there's been this big lucrative market right of training trainers like doing the qualifications as pts and premier were the biggest one in the uk and have been for what 10, 15 years, something like that. They're, <laughs> more than 10 years. <laughs> right? if, but if they're closing down, does that mean that that market is no longer as big as it was and that actually there are fewer people going in? Because I think one no, of the, the... The market's bigger. They just haven't... They've done a blockbuster. Oh, really? You think they just haven't evolved with the rest of it? Yeah. They, they, I did Premier 16 years ago. Yeah. Um, so it's been going for a lot longer than 16 years. <laughs> and I just don't think they've evolved with the, where the industry is going. They were, you know, I did mine with a company called Lifetime. We were probably the second. By the way, for anyone listening to this, whichever one you pick doesn't matter. Just do your level three and get it done. Uh, they're all basically the same. It will make no difference to your career. Um, but Premier were the biggest one. Uh, and I was like, oh, shit, they've, they've gone bust. They've gone down. Uh, and I was like, okay. Does that tell us something? And maybe not. Maybe it's just that they did a blockbuster, didn't keep up with the times and how it's delivered. Um, but I was like, I wonder if that could also mean a slowing down of the number of people coming in to want to be PTs, because maybe they're hearing more and more of the shit show of other people being sold this dream where they're going to charge £50 an hour straight out of the gate. They reckon, ah, oh, sweet. I'll, you know, if I just get 30 clients, 30 hours a week type of thing, I'll be swimming. That'll be great. I'll be earning good money, flexible. And then like the reality is not that. That isn't what happens when you first come out. And so we see this churn of people, as, as Jimbo's clients are there, of being like going and working in a pure gym in central London and not seeing any of the same staff over an 18 month period of time. They've all changed. And but at a pure gym in central London, there will be a shitload of staff as well. So that's not like, that's because there's only four people working there. No, 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 no. There's going to be loads. And maybe, dude, yeah, we definitely, I think, lose sight of that sometimes. Because even, you know, we deal with quite a, a few younger coaches, right? Coaches in their first few years of their career type thing. But they're still coaches who are maybe interested in being the best that they can be and want to level up. They're, they're still the 5% the of the industry. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we're not, we don't even, I don't even see that 95% who would come and go in the pure gym at all. Yeah, exactly. And, but I, I also think it's such a shame because I genuinely think that if the all these trainers had to actually learn some applicable biomechanics as part of their level three, we wouldn't see the churn rate that we see because they'd be so much better equipped when they left to make a difference, to create a great client experience, to keep clients, to then go, okay, I can keep clients for longer than the first three sessions that they bought from me because I sold a three pack, right? And and okay, I can start to see this as a career and it's not just this constant stress of picking up more clients and ah, and all the things that go along with that. Yeah, and- because I, I know for me personally, the moment I started to study biomechanics was the moment I started to provide more value to my client in that moment. Yep. Yes, we know there's so much more to it than just obviously in the moment going through that leg extension, hamstring curl, whatever it is, in terms of getting actually a result. But in the early days, when you're a face-to-face coach with a client, that is what's going to yeah. keep them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it's down to, okay, how you manage everything else around that lifestyle-wise, nutrition-wise, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if you can provide value around that session itself and understand exercise mechanics, is going to take that up tenfold. It's buy-in, right? Like, if you want to do all the cool, complicated, longer-term stuff that absolutely matters, you still have to have got buy-in from your client. And the best way you get that quickly is you provide them with an experience that they haven't had before. And the fun part of doing what we do is we come across trainers who've been training 10 years who you can still, in one set, get them to experience something they've never experienced. And be like, what? Because, and I know that because I was that guy. <laughs> I've been training for ages when I first discovered biomechanics. And I was like, well, hang on. Well, how's, how have I never had this experience? Uh, the, the enthusiasm, excitement, and sort of coolness, effectively, of that moment is the best way, I think, and I'm, I am biased, but I think it's the best way of picking up clients because it is such a persuasive moment. And anyway, we're, we're, we're getting onto a, a social thing, but that, that is why we're passionate about biomechanics. It's because not because we want to know big words and sound like the big swinging dick, but it's because it really makes a difference. And we could have such a better industry for people that didn't have to have this shit churn rate if we just taught some not even that complicated things that we can all learn. If you come on any of our things within a day, you will learn how to do comfortably a bunch of these things that you can take back immediately and create some of these experiences and improve your business, improve your confidence as a coach, improve your client retention, improve your ability to get a response and a a result from a client. Like, genuinely and i'll give you your money back if you don't find that like i couldn't mean that more sincerely um all right so let's let's we're i'd say that pretty much wraps off our 10th life lesson there in terms of you need to understand biomechanics to succeed in life <laughs> hilariously that wasn't one of our 10 <laughs> um, unless you've so got how, pretty we'll much covered mine unless you've got one you want to wrap stuff up with I will, I'll tell you what I'll do. I've got two more in here, but I'll do them very, very quickly. So, Because the last one, well, the second last one is a quote. Again, this is Bertrand Russell. So he has these things called his Ten Commandments. Um, Bertrand Russell, great uh, early 20th century philosopher. If you don't know him, you should check him out. But he said, find more pleasure in intelligent dissent than in passive agreement. For if you value intelligence as you should, the former implies a deeper agreement than the latter. Uh, and, you know, for me as someone who likes debate and uh, argument in the, you know, intellectual sense, not just shouting at people, then I, I've always found that, like, I want to know the truth. And if you can show me that I'm wrong in something that I'm thinking, I don't want to keep believing wrong things. So 
I'm going to question you on why on what you think I'm wrong about. And I'm not just going to take your word for a thing. But please, God, if you can show me the error of my thinking and the error of my ways, I'm all ears. I want to know the truth for whatever that thing happens to be. And so if you value intelligence, as you should, then finding pleasure in intelligent dissent rather than just passively agreeing and nodding your head for the sake of saving the peace. doesn't mean you have to make an argument with every situation. Though, again, my girlfriend, Laura, might tell you I do otherwise. Uh, like anyone who, who spends time with me, I can be a bit pedantic. But it's it's really built on this thing. that I want to understand the world, the universe kind of around me. And I, I'm happy to have discussions. And I don't take it, I try not to anyway, take it personally. I try to treat ideas as ideas. And I love discussion around them. Uh, and so that's just always been a thing that, that stuck with me on that. And then the final one then, my last point was, I actually think the key to liking yourself is respecting yourself. And this is another thing I took from mental health stuff and getting better is, okay, there's a bunch of the tactics and strategies, and we touched on some of them um, with regards to overthinking and not interacting with thoughts. But one of the other big lessons I learned that has changed my life undoubtedly is behaving in a way where I would respect who I was. You know, I used to lie too much because I tried to avoid conflict, but I still needed reassurance. And so a bunch of mine were relationship-based, which makes me a great catch. Sorry, Laura. Uh, but I had I had relationship OCD. Again, makes me a wonderful catch. But as a result, like I felt a deep need. I was deeply insecure. I didn't think anyone would find me lovable or attractive and yada, yada, yada. These are normal thoughts and, and everyone has this type, almost everyone has this type of issue, but most people don't take it to the levels and the depths where it dominates every waking hour of their moment. And um, so some of the compulsions that would come out of that would be, well, you know, oh, someone paid me attention. That feels that feels reassuring. Maybe I'm not a pathetic, ugly person that no one wants to fuck or whatever that thing happens to be. But that would cause me to behave in ways that were about reassuring myself in the short term, but that actually caused me to be really quite selfish. And the more I did that, and then oh, I didn't want, oh, I was sort of embarrassed and a bit ashamed because clearly I just lie. Oh, I did something I don't want my partner to find out about. So I'm going to have to lie about it because I don't want to hurt their feelings. But then I knew I was lying to them. And so I didn't respect myself for that particular thing. And you know, that's just one example of plenty because, again, I was a wonderful person in my early 20s uh, and into my, to my mid-20s. And again, we go back to the first lesson we started with, that the hardest times lead to the best times. I'm, I like myself so much more now because I don't behave in a way where I, if it was anyone else, I wouldn't like that person. And yet I was the one doing it. So was it any wonder that I didn't like myself that much? And I doubted this and I was so paranoid and concerned. It's like, well, that was me. <laughs> it was, you know, often we project how we behave onto other people. Or if you're behaving like an asshole, don't be surprised if you start being paranoid about how other people behave. Sometimes uh, a jealous mind is a, is, is a guilty mind, right? And for me, starting, I started with this question, like, who, how would I have to act in order to respect myself and to like myself. And okay, well, if you don't know the answer to that, look around you and go, who do you respect and like? And how do they behave? And just fucking imitate that for a bit, <laughs> right? It's a good place to start. Like what you sort of spontaneously admire tells you something about what you value and what you think is good or bad in the world. So just aim at that. And actually, as I did that, as I stopped lying, as I, stopped, as I started to change a bunch of things, turns out I liked myself a lot more. And then life got easier to live. And so I actually think that the key to liking yourself, at least for me, was in behaving in a way that would allow me to respect myself. 
I think a point you say touched on there is yeah, don't feel bad about I say imitating others. If you're even if it's early in the career, how other people talk, how other people educate in terms of other people content they put out. But along that journey, obviously learn your own voice, learn yeah. who you are. Um, but in your early days, early days of your career, when you're younger, that's not necessarily a bad thing. No. Um, straight away, sometimes we see that as a bad thing. But yeah, just to touch on that point you mentioned there, it's like, yeah, don't feel bad about, oh, I'm going to, I'm imitating this, this person, this, this coach, this educator, um, or this personality or this type of person, because along your way, you're going to develop your own personality, develop your own way of educating, develop your own way of talking. Yeah. Um, so it's never, yeah, never a bad point. Well, it goes back to that 20 year old thing, doesn't it? Like you don't, you have to build an identity. Right. And you build it on top of who you sort of innately are and then a bunch of experiences and failings and successes. And you're like, oh, that I tried that. Yeah, that really wasn't kind of me. Or actually, no, that that sort of was me, but I didn't do it very well. And then, you know, over time, whether this is writing, whether it's the type of jokes you tell you, like we all evolve a bit uh, within that. And so you can't start out without mimicking a little bit other people you hear this from comics all the time like finding your voice you hear it from writers all the time finding your voice and the same thing is true here when you're putting out content you're speaking to camera or you're doing whatever it is that you need to do to make a success of being a coach in an online space it takes time to find your voice so one of the things you can do in fact one of the tactics i get to people who come on my my camera confidence stuff is we make a little list of who they like watching on camera we evaluate why what is it about these people are they all the same no they're all quite different they've all different things okay then we try and look and ask you the same questions what, what do you like and sometimes we might even try things where all right make a bit of content in the style of that person and then make some in the style of that person and then this person and then this person and which one of those seems like it sits best with you and we sort of try and refine over time that thing of of finding uh finding your voice in there yes good good point to end <laughs> to summarize yes lovely point. right there you go mine and jimbo's big big hopefully maybe maybe not so big i don't hopefully know some, someone saw some value some in at least lessons. one of them <laughs> <laughs> right thank you very much for listening guys we will catch you on the next one you can find us on all major platforms including apple podcast and google play if you like what we have to say here, then please do leave a rating or review. We're only here because of your support, so thank you very much for listening. If you want everyone else to understand how awesome biomechanics is as well, then please do connect them with the PT Project podcast.